Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. We're in John chapter 8 this morning. This is a tricky passage for a few reasons, so let me hit what, for some, may be the elephant in the room and for others. So, this is going to be one of those things, some of your Bibles, NIV being one of them, will tell you the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses don't have this. All right, so some people are going to be upset that I read that. How dare we question scriptures? And other people are going to be upset that I'm using scripture that maybe isn't original to the book of John. I majored in Bible translation. This is a subject that that doesn't actually worry me. Uh, One of the subjects that we have to ask is, you've heard me say the point of, you know, Vermont power drill. They don't make drill bits or drills. They make holes. <laughs> the drill bits are how they do that. The Bible depends upon if we consider the Bible the point or history the point, but the Bible is a tool. I love the Bible. I majored in Bible translation, a couple of degrees in it. Love the Bible. It's perfect. I believe that, but it's also not the point. The Bible points us to the point. The Bible teaches us about God. Um, it's, it's not about King James or NIV. What is sacred is what the Bible teaches. And I think this story is absolutely consistent with everything we know about Jesus. I have read Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, all those supposedly lost gospels. Not all of them, there's so many. But I've read an awful lot of these supposedly lost gospels and can argue for a long time on why they have no business being in the Bible. The number one reason is everything that's in them is just ludicrous. It's just not the character of Jesus. It's science fiction. This reads absolutely like a passage about Jesus. I believe that. Um, So... So what do I think about this passage? I don't think John wrote it, but I think it's a real story. Earlier passages, it's even in Luke. It kind of migrates through the Gospels. I think at some point there was a scribe that got stuck with reading the book of John. And, and this is, keep in mind, this is supposition. I think there's a scribe who was translating John, and he had this one passage over here. He's like, I know this is a true story. I just can't figure out where it goes. I'll just put it here. I think it's true. I, I believe it's Scripture. One of the reasons, it, it's... It stood the test of time. 2,000 years later, we've still got it. I think that's a good indication that the Holy Spirit kept it around for us. I'm not trying to bring up doubt about the Bible. I, I reiterate, this book is perfect. I believe that. I believe that this is the Word of God. Inerrant, authoritative. I have my inerrant, sufficient, authoritative, infallible, divinely inspired, universal, unique. I believe that about this book. I'm not trying to, to bring up any doubt. But we do occasionally have to go through what, are these, what happens when these ancient manuscripts aren't all in agreement. And that's a field called textual criticism, and I studied a whale of a lot of that in college. And I, and I came out the other side saying, I believe this book is the word of God even more than when I started studying that. 
I don't think it's a dangerous subject. But every now and then we're going to have these footnotes that tell us some manuscripts don't have this, like the end of the book of Mark. We read about these occasionally. This passage, some people might skip it. I don't think we want to skip it. I think it's a great passage. But I think that we can talk about the fact that Old manuscripts didn't have it, then it was in Luke, then it was in John. That's okay. I think, I think it's, I really legitimately 100% believe it, it is the Word of God and, and that, it, that it belongs in our Bible. Um, it applies to us because it shows us how much Jesus loves sinners. And that's a big deal because I'm a sinner and Jesus still loves me. So I want to read this passage and then discuss how this account builds. Um, towards that conclusion that Jesus loves sinners and what that means for us and how we are to love people. So, with that said, John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, the law, in the law of Moses, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. But then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Tough passage. Let me say that the reproach of the sinner is deserved. Now, having said that, there are a couple of ways of looking at the story, a couple of ways of looking at this woman. On the one hand, this seems like a setup to me. I think she, we read it's a trap. She was being used by the Pharisees. They just wanted to trap Jesus. That was their goal. They didn't care about the woman. I don't think they cared about what she did. I think they just hated Jesus that much. Why do I say this? Well, for one thing, if they caught her in the act of adultery, and it says they did, where's the guy? I mean, they should have both been caught and punished equally. Um, if they caught her in the act, why didn't, they, why didn't they bring the guy as well? The Pharisees were a bit sexist. Okay, maybe a lot sexist. Maybe. Um, and maybe that's why he was missing. Uh, they, they kind of emphasized, Moses said we kill the women. Moses said you kill the perpetrators, not, not just the women. Um, the law said both parties were to be put to death, not just the woman. Maybe he was a friend of the Pharisees. Maybe he was a Pharisee. Well, I mean, it's speculation. We don't know. I want to be clear on that. We we don't know. How do you catch someone in the act? Like, whoops, I'm sorry I walked into your house in your bedroom. 
This has all the marks of a setup, does it not? Um, that it had to be in the act. The law of Moses was clear. It's not based on supposition. It's not copper. It's not like oh, we 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 saw them holding hands. The law of Moses was pretty clear how you had to prove this. She's something of a victim here. This is she's she's fishing bait to get Jesus. She is a pawn in their games. Bluntly put, she had been used, and I think, and certainly is being used here. They don't care who she is. They don't care what she's done. She is a, a tool to catch Jesus. Um, we, don't, we don't know her name. I don't think they cared. Uh, she's just the adulterous woman. Probably not wearing much. And so stood before Jesus and those who he was talking with, Kind of like livestock. But, let me say something clear that maybe we don't want to talk about. She did deserve to be there. Okay, She, she was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses was clear about that. Uh, and, and in the Old Testament, the penalty was death. It may seem harsh. Maybe, maybe, it, maybe that's a fair term. I'm not saying that the guy didn't deserve to be there too. Okay. But at the end of the day, she was an adulterer. She's not innocent. It's easy in the story to pity her, and, and that's okay. I, I do pity her. I do. But I pity, I pity all sinners. Sin separates us from God. It's terrible. I, I feel bad for all of us that sin, but we're, that doesn't mean that we're not sinners. I can't make excuses for her. We, we do this. I love this new word. I, I don't know how new this word is. It's kind of newish to me in the last five, ten years. What aboutism? You heard that word? I like that word. You hear it in politics all the time. You call out one candidate on something, but what about... That didn't make it right. It just means they're both wrong. What about the guy? Well, he should be there too, but she's still a sinner. She does, she, she sinned. She got caught. How, whether it was a setup or not, she got caught. The law of Moses says she deserves to die. These are all true statements, and whether or not the guy was there, whether or not it was a setup, who the guy was, none of that matters. She still does the sin is deserved. The, the punishment for sin is deserved. We don't want to talk about it. We like to gloss over that and pretend that sin isn't a big deal through what about is if somebody gets called on to sin inevitably, well, what about <laughs> What about my neighbor? What about this person in the church? What about this person I know? I'm, at least I'm not as bad as... And everybody can say that because there's an Adolf Hitler. So everybody can say, at least I'm not that bad. Sin destroys lives. It sends us to hell. It separates us from God. It is a big deal. And we trivialize... And when we, when we trivialize it, we do so at a dangerous risk because God doesn't trivialize it. It was a big enough deal that nations were pun- Israel and nations were punished. Um, Jesus died to make it go away. Suffered the, the, the horror of the crucifixion. Don't, don't gloss over that part in this account. She stood where she should stand. Condemned for her sin. For that sin, the Old Testament was clear, death penalty. At that time, and that is what she deserved under under the law of Moses. And 
as Israel and stuff is in, in the news right now quite a bit. Keep in mind, nobody was forced to live in Israel. God set that covenant up way back in the days of Joshua. If you want to live here, follow God. If you don't want to follow God, no problem. There's, other, there's a lot of other places you can live. But if you're going to live here, you're agreeing to follow the rules of God. She was still part of that. She'd still decide. She could, Egypt was, was a wealthy country. Um, at this time, Damascus, the Decapolis, just across the river. Israel's not big. It's not like, uh, you know, here in West Virginia, if we don't like the U.S., it's a long trip to get out of here. If you decide, I don't want to live here anymore. Israel's tiny. Um, Jerusalem is very close to the border at this time of a place called the Decapolis. You, you, could, you, you, could, you could get there in a day. Um, this, was, this was her choice. She lived under the rules of God and broke them. Her reproach was legitimate. She was facing the trial of her life, and, and, and she deserved it. Let me be clear on that. Now, having said that, all of us are sinners. Romans is very clear. The wages of sin is death. We all deserve to die. We all deserve to be separated from God. That's why there, we need to repent. We need to acknowledge that God's ways are right, and our ways are wrong. There is a danger in this passage. The crowd probably didn't care about the sin. They just wanted to get Jesus. They weren't concerned. I don't think about justice, or the guy would have been there. And, and they had the scent of blood. The Romans, the Romans loved a good parade, but not like we like a parade with floats and bands. The Romans enjoyed a good parade where you captured your enemies and paraded them through the city streets in chains only to be executed on the front steps where everybody could see them get hacked to pieces. I like Alexander Dumas, one of my favorite writers, the guy that wrote, among others, Three Musketeers. Um, And most of his books take place in France. And and consequently, I've learned a lot through reading him of more of just how bloodthirsty the French people were. You know, the, the... Days of the of the French Revolution. The French Revolution. Let's get the kids together and watch Madame Guillotine chop heads off. Maybe we can get twelve today. Um, it was they would bring the kids out. They, they, you know, the bloodthirstiness of the of of the French people during the American Revolution. Before we say, oh, those terrible French people, Salem, Massachusetts, where we just went crazy and decided to call everybody a witch without any proof and and based on the say so of of teenage girls just so that we could just watch people die and hang. Humans are a bloodthirsty crowd. <laughs> and, and I think that that's a lot of this here. A lot of the excitement, let's, let's see someone die because it's interesting and it's not us, it's fun. People are cruel. And back then, I do think that people enjoyed a good stoning. We read about that a whole lot throughout the, throughout the era. We decry this as we should, but I would still point out that that was the rule that God set up for the people. Jesus saves her life. Go, Jesus. Oh, but, but it doesn't end there, does it? Because after everyone leaves, he tells her, knock it off. He doesn't just save her life and say, you can go back to what you were doing. We, too often we use this passage to excuse sin, and that's not the point of the passage. Don't judge me. Jesus says don't judge. That's not what the point of this passage is. 
And that's not what he says. We throw out, don't judge me, usually when we've done something wrong and deserve to be judged. The Greek word, you know I'd bring Greek up at some point. The Greek word is krino. And sometimes we translate it judge, but I'm not sure that in English it totally gets the concept. I might translate the word krino, condemn. Don't condemn. Ours is not to condemn. I, uh, look with me, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, encourage, with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Boy, this this doesn't sound like today. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Yeah, there's a point where Jesus tells us, don't don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw pearls before swine. Who chooses what's a dog or, or, or what's a pig? We are called to judge. This concept of you don't have the right to judge, we are called to call out sin and call people on it. Now, those outside of the church are guilty of one thing, which is refusing Jesus. Okay, that's, why they're, that's why they're going to hell. Once we become Christian, once we say that we follow God, and this girl lived in Israel at that time, once we say we follow God, we absolutely call out sin. Because that's the point of the church is to help us to become more Christ-like. And if we give blanket permission, do whatever you want to do, who are you to judge me? We've entirely missed the point of the church, the point of the Bible. People do not want to be corrected. and They don't want to be rebuked. Which is why I think Paul wrote what he did in, in 2 Timothy. We live in a day when people want their ears tickled. They don't want to hear about sin. They definitely don't want to be transformed and change. Here stands Jesus, the one without sin. All authority in heaven and on earth stood before this woman. This was a statement of divinity when he, you know, when he remains behind and everybody leaves. The Messiah could throw the first stone. He is God's agent on earth. But he showed grace and, and, and walked away. No, he didn't walk away. He showed grace and then tells her to knock it off. Stop sinning. We love to say don't judge. Jesus says don't judge, but he also says stop sinning. And he calls her on that. Jesus never once condones her sin, for, uh, just allows it to continue. He calls her on it. He addresses it lovingly. I think he does it lovingly. He addresses, I think, the bloodthirstiness of the crowd. Again, gently, but he addresses it. How does Jesus deal with our sin? Same way, lovingly but directly. We are not given permission to continue in our sin. That's what it means to become a Christian, to make Jesus Lord. Is that there was what we were, is what we read in my Sunday school class in Romans. 
there's what we were. And then when we become a Christian, there's what we're becoming. And we cannot stay where we were or we're not becoming a Christian. And we're not following God. But the good news from this is that when we become Christian, when we follow God, when we try to give up our sin, I say, I'm going to say try because I absolutely believe that the Holy Spirit enables us to become better or he doesn't work, and I absolutely believe he works. So there is no question that when we become a Christian and put our effort to follow in Christ, it works every time. If it doesn't work, it's because we're resisting the Holy Spirit, um, which Stephen tells the Pharisees that in, in Acts when, they, when they're getting ready to stone him, that they resist the Holy Spirit. When we don't resist the Holy Spirit, we will become more Christ-like. Not at the rate that I want. I wish I was a lot more like Jesus than I am. But I'm better than I was. Because, not from my efforts, but because the Spirit transforms us. And as we're transformed, we are restored to God, and we have hope. And that is a guarantee. One of the many problems of pornography is that it strips women of their dignity, teaches guys to objectify women. Their personalities are irrelevant. Their bodies are just for sex. And this is not a new problem. Pharisees, I think, were in a similar mode. This woman was nameless. She was an object. Uh, she, was, she was somebody's daughter. She might have been somebody's mom, prob- probably somebody's wife. Take away that identity, and we've done something terrible to her. Uh, she just becomes a thing. She doesn't matter. And this is where, and this is where I'm going to I don't intend to step on toes. I hope that you hear what I'm saying. This is what we can do as Christians too. Abortionists, drug dealers and users, alcoholics, LGBT, whatever the alphabet is now. Anytime we dehumanize people, we are out of step with the Bible and with Jesus who treats this woman who's being used as an object by everyone else. He treats her with compassion and dignity and humanity. Jesus brings humanity to sinners. These are people, when we demonize people, we dehumanize people that Jesus loves, people that Jesus died for. Um, When people are out of step with the Bible, they don't need for us to make them feel worse to treat them like a thing, like property. Our nation has a history. In the past, I'm not trying to say now, but in the past, we had definitely had people were property um, at one time. And, that was, and that's a terrible blot on our history. We know that. Jesus brings humanity for, to sinners. He loves them for who they are without excusing the sin. Absolutely, our world tells us If you love me, you will accept what I'm doing. And the message of the Bible is, I can love you and still say that what you're doing is wrong. And and we can do both. As a church, we have to remember the humanity of sinners. We have to love them. The The world feels hated and unloved. It hates itself, suicide, depression, drug use, all of these horrible, all these terrible, tragic behaviors exist 
because the world hates itself. And they shouldn't feel hated and despised from the church. I think that why they feel hated and despised uh, is because they're out of step with God. But they shouldn't feel that from us. They should feel that God loves them and wants to restore them. We need to show the greatest of love. And I know that we can do this without soft-peddling sin. It, it's not a you love me and what I'm doing or you hate me and hate what I'm doing. I, I, that, that's a false dichotomy. We can love the sinner and still hate the sin and lovingly tell people that. God wants to save us. And we have the guarantee that if we follow him on his terms, we have the guarantee we're saved. I, I have no idea what Jesus wrote. It's the only time that Jesus writes something and we don't know what it is. Um, tragically frustrating. <laughs> it drives me crazy that I wish I could know. Um, but it is interesting that the older Pharisees left first. I, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt and that with a little bit of wisdom, they figured out what he was saying and they were wiser than the hot-headed kids and said, yeah, you know what, maybe, maybe we're the ones in the wrong I'd like to give them that benefit of the doubt, that, that they had some wisdom. So what about us? Do, do we get what Jesus is saying here? Or, or do we twist this passage and make it say what we want it to, to say? Or, or to suit our own desires? Or, or what our itching ears want, want to hear? Our hymn of decision is hymn number 323. From reproach to repentance to restoration... What a great account of how Jesus conquers sin. One thing I get out of this passage, Jesus, Jesus effectively sends the Pharisees away. And I think that that's neat because he gets alone time with this woman. He had alone time with the lame and alone time with the blind. And he wants that one-on-one encounter with all of us, with, with all people. He wants it with you. If you don't have a one-on-one relationship with God through his son Jesus, I want you to hear that he loves you. He really loves you. Knowing what you've done, he still loves you, even if you don't necessarily love yourself. He loves you. He sees your value. He wants to forgive you, but forgiveness will always, and it has to be, it won't work if it's not on his terms. If you recognize that you are a sinner, in need of salvation that can only come through Jesus, but you haven't made him Lord of your life, let's talk after church about what that looks like. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.